Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. We have several people traveling today. Our senior adults are coming back from a trip to Colorado, so if you would remember them in prayer as they travel today. But also, uh, uh, part of North Monroe International Mission Team has left this morning. Um, You know, we just got our women back from Honduras last Sunday. This morning, a group has left to go to Burma and Vietnam. They're going to go into Burma and uh, visit with some of the pastors that we've been training online. And then they're going to move from there to begin the process of laying the groundwork for new work for North Monroe in Vietnam. Um, And it's an exciting time. It's amazing. I think we're in 15 countries right now. But God's really opened doors for us. And so if you would pray for that group as they travel, I think today, tomorrow, and the next day before they get where they need to be. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time we've had in singing and worship. And now as we open your book, I pray that we would be faithful to the truth that's in it and we would be responsive to the truth we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The title of the article was, Lawyer Has No Luck at All. When you see an article title like that, you've got to read it right. So it goes like this, London, Reuters, if there were a prize for the world's unluckiest man, British solicitor Edward Bentley would surely be in the running. His first mistake was to lose thousands of pounds, that's British money, in bad investments. Disaster followed when he tried to recoup the losses by gambling with money stolen from clients. British newspapers reported Saturday. His first idea was to fly to Monte Carlo and place a single 60,000 pound, $96,000 roulette bet, either on red or black, which would have doubled his money had he won. But the casino maximum stake for this kind of bet was 10,000, so he flew back frustrated. Next, he tried betting on racing And after carefully studying the form books, placed a $10,900 bet on a horse, which was bound to win. But in the race, the horse fell down. He tried the stock market buying a risky 49,000 pound futures option, which promised future reward if the main FTSE 100 index fell. Unfortunately for him, it rose, leaving him with a grand total of 1,000 pounds from his original stake. Now Bentley realizes that his luck was not going to improve, and so unfortunately, he decides to attempt suicide. And so he, uh, sitting in his car with the pipe from the exhaust pumping noxious gas into the vehicle, the engine seized up on the car. So I know it's not funny, but this is bad luck. This is the kind of day I might have. He tried again, but on the second attempt uh, was halted after police stopped him during a routine vehicle check, he told investigators the theft had turned into a comic opera. Bentley's only stroke of luck was finding a lenient judge who gave him a 15-month suspended sentence Friday for stealing 64,000 pounds of his client's money. And so the moral to the story is this. If you're going to do really dumb stuff, pray that you get a lenient judge. And I thought, you know, that applies to us when we look at John chapter 5. Because in John chapter 5, we get this image of Jesus that very few people really fully understand. 
Jesus is not only has tremendous power, but he has unlimited authority. He's been embroiled in this heated conversation with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, over, it started with the healing of a, of a man who'd been sick for 38 years. And they got mad because Jesus had told the guy to pick up your pallet and walk, and it was the Sabbath. And so not only had he healed a man on the Sabbath, but he had told the guy to do something that was forbidden on the Sabbath, so the Jews get really mad. And rather than sort of kowtow to their oppressive behavior, Jesus ratchets the whole thing up. And he says, look, my father's been working until now. I'm working, identifying himself with, with God the Father. And this made the Jews even matter. And so they're to a boiling over point. But in the process of this argument, we see two very, I, I don't want to call them unusual, but insightful things about Jesus. The first is, he's very powerful. And I think he lifts that out. You know, and we've seen this, and this is why John is, uh, you know, filling this book with the stories of Jesus' power, you know, turning the water to wine. He heals the, the, uh, the, the man's servant, and he has now healed the lame man, the man who was sick for 38 years, demonstrating his power. <clears throat> and from that, he begins to describe his power as power from the Father, emanating from the Father, and blessing for us, uh, pours into us. And so we see his power. We looked at that last time. But he also demonstrates his authority. And I thought that was the part that we could pick up this week and begin to look at. So let's start in verse 22 of John chapter 5. He says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Now those are stunning words for me because people seldom think of Jesus as a judge. You know, when you think of Jesus, you think of him in kinder, softer, uh, more tender uh, uh, terms, don't you? He's, he's more of our advocate. The Bible does call him our advocate. If, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. And so there is that ad, advocate idea. He's more of our defender. But we need to understand, too, he's going to be the judge. And all authority has been given onto him to be the judge. And this isn't just here. We see this repeated throughout the New Testament. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it's very clear in this that Jesus is not just our advocate. He's not just our Savior, but He's also our Lord, and He has that authority. In fact, uh, uh, in Matthew 25, 31, it says, uh, but the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And in that same passage, Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats, and that's the great throne of judgment. And the one who's sitting on that throne, I want to remind you, is Jesus. That's a side of Jesus that most people don't really recognize. Because most people, particularly in our, our culture today, they want sort of a pathetic, impotent, uh, out-of-touch Jesus, uh, a Jesus that they don't really have to fear, but a Jesus that they can manipulate, you know? Sort of a Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights, baby Jesus kind of idea, right? Or uh, 
a Jesus who's going to be our buddy and he's going to, you know, kind of go along with everything we do, our riding partner, Jesus. And yet here we see a very different Jesus. We see a Jesus who's going to be Lord and judge, verse 23, so that all honor, and that word is Timae, those of you named Timothy, that means honored of God, all honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. In other words, in the same, in the same breath, in the same level, at the same, uh, at the same heights, they honor both the Son and the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so the point of it is, is one day we're going to face final judgment and the judgment and the judge will be named Jesus. Now, I for one am glad of that. I for one am glad that Jesus is going to be judged because human beings make terrible judges. I mean, I I know I do. Because the problem is, is that I don't know all the facts. But when Jesus judges, his judgment is going to be true. Our, Our judgment is not true. Uh, We don't know the facts. We don't know the background story. We don't know what's gone into things. And so we make superficial judgments. Don't we? We do it all the time. The other day, my my son Matthew and his young wife, Treslin, went to the movies, and it was during the Barbie thing. And they noticed that all these girls are dressed up in pink and sort of Barbie clothes. And Treslin made the same. And she said, you know, I'm just not used to that. I'm not used to seeing girls dressed up. Uh, to go to a movie, you know, guys might do it for like Star Wars, you know, they'll do their lightsaber thing and all that stuff, but you just don't see the girls do it that much. And they said everybody there was dressed in pink and they're waiting in line to get their popcorn. And Matthew looks over and there's this elderly lady, this really elderly lady, and she's got on pink. And Matthew's like, wow, even the old women are doing it. He said, look, Trez, that old lady over there, she's got a pink pink on too. And Trez looks over and she says, Matthew, her shirt says, I survived breast cancer. (laughs) (laughs) When we judge, we don't judge rightly because we don't always know all the facts, but Jesus does. And so his judgment is true. Ours is flawed and we miss stuff. But secondly, his judgment is pure. You know, too often in our time, judgment isn't pure because it's corrupted by influence. And we're seeing this more and more, and it's really troubling in our time because, you know, we're seeing even law enforcement at the very highest level and the prosecutor offices at the very highest levels in our nation that seem to be meeting out justice in an uneven way, as if it becomes a politicized thing. You know, justice was always supposed to be blind, and the statue of justice was of a lady holding scales in one hand, a sword in the other, with a blindfold on indicating it doesn't matter who you are it's going to it's going to be meted out fairly to all people regardless but you know that's no longer the case but don't miss the point here if Jesus is judge then he has authority and that's exactly what he said in Matthew 28 when he begins to give us the great commission in verse 18 he he front loads the thing by saying this All authority, he came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me, look, in heaven and on earth. Now that's a Jesus that maybe you didn't know. But you know, you can't claim that kind of authority 
without some validation. I mean, you can't just walk up and say, hey, y'all, I'm equal with God. All authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. You know, David Koresh might do that over in Waco or some guy wearing a bathrobe. And, you know, they say anybody can start a cult in California, just put on a bathrobe, walk on the beach, and you'll get some followers, right? And all you've got to say is, I am the Messiah, and people are going to buy into that at some level, regardless of what you say. But Jesus understood, you don't just say those things yourself, but in fact, you have to have a validation of that. Look at what he says in verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And so he gives us four validations of his authority. First, John the Baptist. He said, you sent to John, and he testified to the truth. So John testified to the truth. But secondly, even more importantly, his works. Verse 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me, and the Father has sent me. I mean, not only does Jesus say, I have the power of the Father, I have the authority of the Father, but let me show you what this looks like. And that's why John has sort of filled his gospel, particularly in the first six, seven chapters, with these stories of the magnificent power of Christ. He turns water to wine at Cana. Um, he knows the insightful depths of Nicodemus's heart and of the woman at the well's heart. And then he heals the, the rich man's servant. And, uh, and then he heals this guy who's been sick for 38 years. And then in, in the next chapter after this, we're going to see that he feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then he walks on water. He's doing all of these things that violate the natural order of life, supernaturally altering that. And look, when you see that happen, and, and by the way, the disciples not only saw it firsthand, but they believed it and they believed it enough that they died for it. It wasn't as if it were some contrived, magical experience that other people were in on and they sort of gave it away. Here's what a guy said one time. He said, people won't die for a lie. These guys died for this. They died because they saw it, they believed it, it validated everything else Jesus said. But he also said the Father. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice or at any time seen his form. But finally, he said, the word of God, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And man, he's talking to Pharisees who had a good bit of the scripture memorized, the Old Testament. And these scribes would meticulously write down every little stroke and, and they were meticulous about getting it right. And these guys were looking for eternal life in those scriptures, but sadly, they couldn't see Jesus. But look at what he says. You, uh, he says, it, it, it is these that testify about me. And when you pick up the Bible and you look at the Old Testament and you see throughout the Old Testament the portrait of Christ. We've talked about this before, the shadows that were there, given to us to validate the real, you know, things like Psalm 22, which meticulously describes uh, the crucifixion of Jesus written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. But it goes back to metaphorical imagery like when Joshua takes the people through the Jordan River, it's symbolic of, of baptism. And when they come into the promised land, it's symbolic of salvation. And then the battle they have with the people in the promised land of the work of sanctification and holiness. And all of that metaphorically speaks to the nature of Christ. And then Jesus, who, who introduces this new idea of a triune God. In the beginning, uh, he was the Word was with God and the Word was God. We talked about that last time, with and was. And it's like, but how can that be if God is one? And yet when you go back 
all the way to the creation story, and God has decided to create the universe, what does he say? He said, let us make man in our own image. Now, why in the world in Genesis, in, in, the, in the very beginning part of Genesis, would God use a plural first-person pronoun if, in fact, there was nothing but a monotheistic understanding of God? Only one God. Hero Israel, that's the Shema of the Jews. Hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And yet he uses a plural pronoun uh, indicating this shadow of the triune God that would be revealed through Jesus, his son. And, and what Jesus is saying is, it's been there all along, guys. You just haven't seen it. But when your eyes are open and you begin to look at the Old Testament, you see it everywhere. And that validates the nature of Jesus. So what do we draw from this? Well, two things, of course. He's powerful and he's authoritative. The Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of modern culture. He's certainly not the Jesus of, of pop culture that's portrayed through media. He is anything but an impotent, out-of-touch uh, God. He is a powerful and authoritative God who deserves your reverence. But let's talk about what it means to us right now, like as we walk out of this place, what do we take with us? What does it mean to me right now? I think it's a bit of a good news, bad news thing. So let's start with the bad news. Here's the bad news. If Jesus is judged, what does that mean? Well, it means that we all face judgment. You see, if there's a judge, there's going to be a judgment, right? And God's judgment is indiscriminate. I mean by that, that he doesn't use one set of standards for one group and another set of standards for the other. It's indiscriminate. Look at verse 27 of Hebrews 9. And inasmuch as it's appointed to men, there's an appointment we have, once to die. There's your answer to reincarnation. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes what? Judgment, right? Now, I don't know if I like that, because when it comes to judgment, I like the, I really want prefer other people to be judged. I mean, isn't that what we do? If you're driving down the highway and, and you're kind of doing the speed limit, which is probably rare for you, uh, you know, Swindoll said that we all get saved from the top down and the last thing to get saved is our right foot. That may be true. But I'm driving down the highway and some maniac comes roaring by you like 120 miles an hour. And he's getting out of traffic and all this, cutting people off. What do you say? Where are the police when you need them? Right? Isn't that what we say? In other words, somebody come judge that guy. I never say that when I'm going 15 over. I'm not cruising down the highway 80, 85, if I ever did that, which there's no proof. <laughs> but if I'm doing that, I'm not going, where are the police when I need them? And the last thing I want to see is a policeman. But that's the way we are with judgment. Yeah, I get it that God needs to judge you. And we know that God needs to judge somebody because if God didn't judge people, what do you do with Adolf Hitler? What do you do with Joseph Stalin? What do you do with Jeffrey Dahmer and, and those kind of people? What do you do with that? You have to have justice, right? So there has to be judgment for bad people, and that means everybody but me. What do you do with a guy like me? It's like that old line out of that country western song. What do you do with good old boys like me? And the answer is the judgment is indiscriminate. 
When it comes to judgment, it's all of us. Even though you think I don't rise to the level of badness to deserve it, listen to this. Even good old boys get judged. Second thing, we won't do well at judgment. You might be thinking, well, maybe I can bend the truth, get, you know, maybe I could get him to see all the good that I've done. That'll somehow offset all the bad. That's why most people today kind of think, you know, it's like if I, if I stand before the man upstairs, then I'm hoping he'll see all the good stuff I did and that'll offset the bad stuff I'm doing. So I always want to do a little more good than I do bad. You ask the average person on the street, do you know for certain if you were to die right now, you'd go to heaven, you know what they'll say? Man, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying. I want to balance the sheet as if that would somehow get special consideration. Or, or maybe he'll go light on me because, he, because I really didn't mean to do it. Or, or maybe there were things in my life that caused it. And maybe he'll understand I grew up in a dysfunctional home with dysfunctional people who were enabling me to do dysfunctional things. And, and I, I start to talk about all the hurts. and hurts. Here's the funny thing about judgment. It's not funny at all, but it's the truthful thing about judgment. When I stand before the Lord, I stand alone. He's not going to bring in the parents I had. He's not going to bring in the brothers and sisters and the bad bosses and all of the things that worked against me in my life. It's just going to be me and me alone. And he's not going to judge them for what I did. I think that's going to be a shock to a lot of people. But God's judgment's incorruptible. We aren't judged by good intentions. We aren't judged on a balance sheet. We're judged on sin. And the Bible says if we commit one sin, we're guilty of all sin. So if he looks at my life and he sees sin, the wages of sin is death. So there's going to be one judgment and I'm not going to do well at that judgment. And if that's true, I'm in serious trouble. That's the bad news. Let me give you the good news. Here's the good news. The good news is if you do really dumb stuff, the most important thing is to get a lenient judge. Right? You have a lenient judge. You see, Jesus is always fair and he's always accurate and he's always right and true, but he offers us a deal. Our judge offers us a plea deal. Look back up at verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words, my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now watch this. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Did you see that? If I hear his word and believe it, it's not as if I pass through judgment and get a different standard of judgment. I pass out of judgment. You don't have to be judged. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And when a person sins, he dies. The wages of sin is death. And that doesn't mean we're going to wait to, to die. That means we die immediately. That we're walking dead. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were, notice the tense of that verb. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so Jesus speaks life to the dead. And when we hear his voice and respond, we come to life. First Peter chapter four, verse six, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. We call this grace. 
God's unmerited favor. When I trust Christ by faith, I pass from judgment into life. Look at verse 26. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him exusory authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, and those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. But here's the point. You have no hope in judgment. If you're judged, you're going to be condemned. And so the only hope to miss judgment is the plea deal, and that's the deal Jesus offers. Believe in me and you won't be judged. And this idea is expressed several ways in the Bible. Revelation 20, verse 12 through 15, talks about the book and the books. Listen to what it says. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. There's the books. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And so you get this. They trot out all these books. <laughs> the reason there's so many books and they're thick books is it's not just the names of the people, but it's all the stuff they ever did, all the thoughts, all the actions, all the deeds, all the sin, all the good, all the bad. It's all there in the books. And he says, if your name is in the books, you're judged according to the books, according to your deeds. But there's this one big book, single book, not books, but book. It's called the book of life. And it says, if your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, you pass from judgment into life. Look what it says in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If any man's name, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, in other words, if your name was in the book of life, if it wasn't found in the book of life, you were thrown in the lake of fire. The judgment was only based on whether or not your name is in the book. Psalm, 40, Psalm 87, 4 through 80 talks about birthright. Shall I mention Rahab? That's another word for Egypt and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia, this one was born there. What have Babylon, Egypt, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia have in common? Well, they aren't Israel. They're the enemies of Israel. Watch what happens. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will count when He registers the peoples. This one was born there. And the beautiful statement of that psalm is, it doesn't matter where you started. When you come to faith in, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, He's going to look at you, whether you were born in Egypt or Babylon, where you started out an enemy of God or not, He's going to say, this one was born in Zion. That one was born in Zion. That one will never die. That one will live forever because He passes from judgment into life. You get it? It's not as if 
In Christ, we're judged by a different standard, but we pass out of judgment. That's why he says in the book of Romans, for the law of liberty has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're no longer judged by that. But if you're not in Christ, you are. And the only way to do that is to take the deal. But the plea deal has two stipulations. Here's the first one. You have to admit the crime. And man, this is so hard. (laughs) Because when we get caught, we lie, deny, blame, and excuse. I mean, my kids did it growing up, and they were great kids. Did you do that? Did you bite your brother? No. Why is he screaming and has that big bite mark on him? I don't know. Somebody else must have done it. It's only you. That's the way we are. We just naturally default to that. We lie, deny, blame, and excuse. I had these two friends. They were coming home from college. There's this road uh, not far from where we were. It goes from South Maine down to Plano, Texas. It was a two-lane asphalt Texas road. And it was just rolling hills. And the only thing on that road was a Dairy Queen in Salina. So you could run. Today, you can't do it anymore. It's called Preston Road. It's got a little crowded. But back in those days, you could run 100, 110 down that road, and you never had a problem. My two buddies are coming home from college. And Greg's in the driver's seat, and Billy's in the passenger seat. And they're running a little over 100, you know, going a little airborne. And they pass a patrol officer coming the other way. And he whips around. It takes him a while to catch him. But when he does, he's a little mad. You know, they get a little mad when they have to go too fast. And he walks up. It's about one in the morning. He walks up to Greg's side. Greg's the driver. And he says, son, is there some reason you're going so fast? And Greg says, yes, sir. My buddy over there, his dad's in the hospital. He's dying. We're trying to get there before he dies. The officer goes, "Mm mm-hmm. He walks around, this true story, he walks around the other side, and Billy's sitting there, and he goes, now before you say anything, let me just let you know, I'm going to call the hospital. Now, is your dad in the hospital, and is he dying? And Billy looked up at the patrolman and said, no, sir, he's lying to you. (laughs) And they, they took them both to jail right then. Now, Billy's dad did get called, but it was to bail them out of jail in McKinney where they had been taken. Uh, And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, we're all that way. It's been happening since Adam and Eve, right? We lie, deny, blame, and excuse. But what does Jesus say do? He just says, admit it. If I admit my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You want to take the plea deal? You just admit your sin, and then you have to accept the deal. Believe in me. That's the deal. And I look at that and I go, why wouldn't anybody do that? Why wouldn't they do that? And I think the only answer I can come up with is pride. They just don't want to die to themselves. And I think behind all of that is this this hope that first, maybe I won't be judged. Maybe they got it wrong. And second, if I do get judged, maybe he'll understand. But when you read the scripture, you realize we're going to have a judge. His name is Jesus. And he's going to judge us indiscriminately. And he's going to judge us with a pure judgment based on sin. And and when we're judged, it is not going to go well unless your name is written in the book.
So why don't you make sure your name is in the book? You can do that this morning. Just admit. No more lies, denials, excuses. Just admit, God, I'm a sinner and I need the grace offer of Jesus. I'm going to take the plea deal. And I'm so glad Jesus is the judge. Would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, I pray that in this place, that those who need you would just call out to you right now. Just Father, I, I realize judgment's, judgment's going to happen in my life. And I realize I'm not going to do well at it. I, I want to take the deal. And so, Father, I admit my sin and I give my life to Jesus. And I thank you for your grace. Heavenly Father, thank you for the offer of grace for all of us. Thank you for the transforming power that it happens as you bring the dead to life. Not just so that we can know eternal life, but that even now we can know abundant life. And I thank you for that and what you've done in so many people's lives. And you're doing it right now in this place in people's lives. Give them the courage now to take that next step and to tell people about it and let people know. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.